A warning. This episode features discussions of homicide and suicide. Caution is advised for listeners under 13. If you or someone you know is experiencing suicidal thoughts, don't hesitate to call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 800-273-8255. There is help. There's a saying I kept coming across with this particular disappearance. Earls don't commit murder. The implication being a member of the British aristocracy wouldn't dare do something so uncivilized. Not only is murder beneath them, if they did kill someone, they'd be completely disowned by their family, friends, and by society. They'd lose everything. But from where I sit, I think it's safe to say Richard John Bingham, Lord of Lucan, was a gambling man. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I'll examine a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today's case centers around a man who was last seen fleeing from the scene of a bloody crime in 1974. His name is Richard John Bingham, Lord Lucan, and he's still wanted for murder today. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. In the U.S., we have the Kennedys, the Rockefellers, and the Kardashians. In Britain, they have the aristocracy, which essentially has all the same perks. Wealth, fame, and influence, with an added layer of prestige baked in. And the only requirement for membership is having the right parents. Born in 1934 to George Bingham, the sixth Earl of Lucan, Richard John Bingham grows up knowing he'll one day become the seventh Earl of Lucan, a title that is, for the most part, cosmetic. Basically, it's a status symbol. 
logistically, it means next to nothing. But as it applies to this story, it means everything. For example, most sources still refer to Richard John Bingham as Lord Lucan or Baron Bingham, even though, in my opinion, murdering someone in cold blood should strip you of all honors and titles. So I'll be using another nickname of his, just Lucan. Let's go way back to 1939 and meet him as a child. The Binghams are living in London, and it's looking like a war is breaking out across Europe. But luckily, even though their wealth pales in comparison to some other aristocrats, they have plenty to go around. Enough that when World War II does hit a year later and bombs begin falling over Europe, they can send seven-year-old Lucan and his siblings to New York City to live with multi-millionaire friends on Park Avenue. It's a lesson Lucan takes to heart, Money and connections can buy you protection. Of course, they can't buy you complete happiness. So while Lucan's life is charmed, it's far from perfect. He grows up with an ill mother, is mostly raised by nannies, and experiences little stability, hopping around the world from place to place. Most accounts describe his childhood as incredibly lonely, at least until he returns to the UK and his parents send him to Eton College. There, he starts to form his own connections. Now, for those of you who don't know, college in England is the equivalent of high school in the States. And Eton is famous. It's rigorous, competitive, and ritzy. Think Harvard, but for high schoolers. Past alumni include David Cameron, the former British Prime Minister, and Princes Harry and William. Similar to having a title next to your name, an Eton diploma is a good way to ensure career success. Even if you're not a great student, like Lucan. By the time he graduates and serves his time in the military, Lucan earns a reputation as one of London's most eligible bachelors. On weekdays, he works as a banker, but on the weekends, he passes the time with his real passion, gambling. He loves to gamble. In time, he actually ditches banking to start a career as a professional. Surrounded by booze, art, and adrenaline, Lucan lives off his various family trusts and becomes a staple at London's Claremont Club. Tall and suave, he'll one day be considered for the role of James Bond in the original film adaptations of the books. So he attracts plenty of attention from the female clientele at the club but he doesn't date seriously until 1963, when at 29, he meets a beautiful art student named Veronica Duncan at a golf outing. It kicks off a whirlwind romance filled with expensive dinners and lavish trips, and they get engaged in under a year. There's just one problem. Not everyone approves. Veronica doesn't come from noble lineage, so some family members think Lucan's rushing into things and marrying down. But if he has any lingering doubts, they don't show up in the reflection of the Bentley that drives them to their wedding. For a while, it's celebration after celebration. After they get married, they travel to Paris and Istanbul for their honeymoon. 
And even when, two months after their return, Lucan's father dies, the tragedy has a flip side for Lucan. He officially becomes Lord Lucan. Around the same time, he gets another nickname. After winning 50,000 pounds in a single game of Baccarat, his friends start calling him Lucky Lucan. He's the man who has it all. Until that luck runs out. Veronica and Lucan's marriage starts to sour shortly after the birth of their first child. Veronica enters a postpartum depression, while Lucan is still living the life of a bachelor. He's nearly always drinking. They live in a house on Lower Belgrave Street, but Veronica spends most nights sitting in the Claremont Club with other wives, watching her husband lose up to 8,000 or 10,000 pounds in a single night. That's the equivalent of more than 100,000 US dollars today. By the end of the 1960s, Lucan's borrowing money to feed his habit, and Veronica's worried that Lucan's not being faithful. Basically, she feels neglected and betrayed. He thinks she's being paranoid. Things rarely take a turn for the worse when, according to Veronica, Lucan physically beats her with a cane to get the, quote, mad ideas out of her head. And when that doesn't stop her from speaking her mind, he pressures his wife into psychiatric treatment against her will. She runs away from the first clinic, but Lucan takes her back to the doctor and insists that she be put on antidepressants. When she finally returns home, their marriage is long past saving. Veronica avoids Lucan, relegating herself to one corner of the house, terrified. When she hires a new nanny for their kids in December 1972, she tells her, don't be surprised if he kills me one day. The comment comes as their marriage officially starts to come to an end. By 1973, Lucan moves out of Lower Belgrave, while Veronica stays with their three kids. Shortly after, a messy court battle ensues, with Lucan fighting viciously to regain custody of the children. He provides hours of secretly taped conversations from their home. He wants to convince the judge that Veronica's mentally unwell and an unfit mother, but his plan backfires. He loses. The court sees past the theatrics and determines that Lucan is controlling and abusive. A judge grants Veronica full custody of the kids with a live-in nanny to help raise them. Lucan only gets visiting privileges every other weekend and walks away with 20,000 pounds in legal fees the equivalent of nearly 300,000 US dollars today. It's a steep bill, and it comes at a time when Lucan's already selling family heirlooms to pay for his other debts. But the financial losses are nothing compared to the hit to Lucan's pride. He's furious. In his mind, Veronica unfairly painted him as a monster. So to correct the narrative, Lucan starts stalking his ex-wife. Obviously, this logic is completely backwards, but I guess the idea is to find dirt on his ex that might somehow reverse the custody decision. 
So he sends a private investigator to watch Lower Belgrave, his old house. And when the PI isn't on duty, Lucan lurks outside in his Mercedes himself. Now, Veronica knows this is happening. Lucan's not subtle. He's cold and rude to the nannies anytime they cross paths. Fear is just another tactic for him, as is defamation. Lucan complains about Veronica to anyone who will listen. She's ruining him, living in his home, and stealing his money. Soon, Lucan's obsession starts to worry his friends, and not just because it seems to be impacting his health and drinking. At dinner one night, Lucan makes an offhanded comment about Veronica to a friend that raises some alarms. He says the problem with Veronica is that she's part perfectly wonderful and part evil. From her interest and from the children's interest, she's better off the hill. To translate, in England, off the hill is old hunting slang. When a deer is killed, people say it's taken off the hill. At the time, Lucan's friend assumes this is just a dark joke, but he still urges Lucan to remain calm, to move on with his life. And for a while, Lucan seems to take the advice. In August 1974, the tensions between Lucan and Veronica begin to fade away. The timing coincides with Veronica hiring a woman named Sandra Rivet as a new nanny. From what I can tell, it's almost like Sandra's presence at Lower Belgrave ushers in a new era. Past nannies have been flaky and unreliable. Maybe because they were scared by all the stalking. But apparently, Sandra brings a new warmth to the house. The children latch onto her. Veronica loves her. Even Lucan takes kindly to the new nanny. They get drinks together once or twice, platonically. Of course, Sandra's arrival doesn't solve everything. Veronica is still struggling with her mental health. Lucan is still gambling, losing 10,000 pounds in singular games of dice. But Lucan's visits with his family become more congenial. Then, in early November 1974, Lucan's spending time with his kids when his oldest daughter, Frances, starts going on and on about Sandra, what the nanny likes, who she hangs out with, where she goes on her day off. At some point, Lucan pauses Frances and, out of the blue, asks when Sandra's day off is. Francis answers honestly. Thursday, she says, not thinking much of it. Until Thursday arrives. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a 
happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. By early November 1974, Lucan's drinking is getting out of hand. According to the Claremont Club's doorman, Lucan gets, quote, bombed from 11 in the morning until 4 at night. Meanwhile, his frequent visits to the club have put him somewhere in the ballpark of 65,000 pounds in debt, or almost 1 million US dollars today. He's not doing well, but he still cares about his image. As author Laura Thompson put it in her book about Lucan's life and disappearance, he looked like a lord, but the pockets of his Savile Row suits were filled with IOUs. And part of looking like a lord is having a nice car. Lucan loved his Mercedes, which is why it's so strange when he approaches his friend, Michael Stoop, and asks to borrow his Ford Corsair. Michael's like, you can borrow my Mercedes if you want, but Lucan says no, he wants the Ford Corsair. And Michael gives it to him without asking too many questions. Lucan drives the Ford Corsair on Thursday, November 7th. After having drinks with his friend, Greville Howard, he brings Greville home in the car. Along the way, Greville invites Lucan out to the theater that evening, but Lucan declines without giving much of an explanation. He says he may be up for a late dinner at the Claremont around 11 p.m. though. A little before 9 p.m., Lucan's Mercedes arrives outside the club. Lucan doesn't get out of the car, but he rolls the windows down, just enough to be seen, and asks the doorman if his gambling pals are inside. After learning that they are, Lucan just waves and drives away. Meanwhile, the house at Lower Belgrave is quiet. Veronica's watching TV upstairs with her eldest, Francis, while the other children are in bed. And sometime after 9 p.m., Lucan enters the home without anyone knowing. He doesn't knock or ring the bell. The chain on the front door isn't latched for the night, and he still has a spare key. Once inside, he disappears into the basement and waits for an opportunity to strike. It's the nanny's night off, and he knows Veronica's nightly routine. She has tea every night before bed, so he listens for the sound of her footsteps in the kitchen, a kettle being placed on the stove. When he hears movement, Lucan leaps upstairs and beats her over the head with a piece of lead pipe over and over until her skull is cracked in six places. She's dead. For a moment, Lucan believes this is it. The time has come. He's killed his wife. But when he drags the body into the light of the basement, he sees that it's not Veronica. It's Sandra, the nanny. Sandra must have switched her nights off. As the realization hits, a noise comes from upstairs. It's Veronica asking for her tea. Standing in a pool of the nanny's blood, Lucan's left with two choices. He can flee the house through the basement door, or he can finish what he came here to do. Lucan decides to stay. 
He creeps back up from the basement to the first floor. He hears Veronica come downstairs, and as she nears the coat room, he swings at her with the lead pipe. He makes contact with her skull, but it's not enough to incapacitate her, which means Veronica is able to fight back, ruthlessly. They struggle until they reach the staircase, where Lucan pins her down and tries to strangle her. But she slips through his arms, maneuvers into a position, and attacks him where he's vulnerable. She yanks on his scrotum. The action likely saves her life. Lucan falls away in pain, and for a moment, neither one moves. They sit on the stairs together, reeling, breathing. And in an instant, Lucan's aggression just fades away. Just seconds after trying to murder her, Lucan offers to help Veronica. He says he'll take her upstairs and have a look at her injuries, clean off some of the blood. And Veronica plays along. She goes upstairs to the master bedroom with him, but when Lucan goes to prepare a cold washcloth, she runs. Battered, exhausted, and terrified, she sprints from the house, through the neighborhood, until she reaches a bar called the Plumber's Arms. Standing barefoot, covered from head to toe in blood, she turns every head in the tavern, until, on the verge of passing out, she shouts, Help me! I've just escaped from being murdered! My children! My children! He's murdered my nanny! Patrons call the police, and an ambulance arrives within a half hour to take Veronica to the hospital. Among her many injuries are seven head lacerations, and gashes in the back of her throat from gloved fingers being shoved into her mouth. She'll stay at the hospital for the next six days, recovering. But back at Lower Belgrave, by 9.50pm, Lucan still hasn't left. Around this time, Frances, the oldest daughter, hears her father's voice from the floor below her bedroom. She knows this is unusual. Her father never visits at this hour. When she looks downstairs, Frances catches a glimpse of Lucan walking in and out of the bedrooms below, looking for Veronica. When he doesn't find her, he rushes out of the house without another word. He doesn't immediately go to his car. He rings the doorbell of a neighbor's house down the street, the Floormans. Their daughters go to school with his children. When they don't answer, he doubles back to the Ford Corsair he drove to the house. He eventually finds a phone to call the Floormans, and when Mrs. Floorman finally answers, she hears what she later describes as a disoriented muddle of words on the other line. It's Lucan. He wants her to go to his wife's house and check on his kids, which is obviously pretty confusing and alarming for Mrs. Floorman. It's the middle of the night. There's no reason Veronica wouldn't be home, and Lucan sounds completely off-kilter. But before she follows up, Lucan hangs up and decides to call his mother instead, who says she'll check on the kids without asking many questions. After ending the call with his mother, Lucan drives the Ford Corsair about 50 miles to Sussex. For whatever reason, Lucan wants to regroup with his friends Ian and Susan Maxwell Scott. He arrives at their house around 11.30pm. 
but Susan's the only one home. Ian is on business in London, and understandably, Susan's completely shocked. Why would Lucan arrive so late without any warning, covered in blood? There's no good explanation for it, but here's the story Lucan tells her. A few hours earlier, he says he was out for an evening walk near his old home. He wanted to check on his children from a distance because he missed them. When he passed by the house, he heard a fight inside and got worried, so he used his spare key and went inside. It was good that he did, because when he went into the basement, he found Sandra, the nanny, dead on the floor, and his ex-wife caught in a violent struggle with an unknown assailant. Lucan pulled Veronica away from the attacker, but accidentally slipped in Sandra's blood, which is why there are stains on his clothes. The attacker fled, but when things settled down, for some reason, even though he saved her, Veronica's shock turned into rage at him. His ex-wife accused him of hiring a hitman to kill her. He told Veronica that she was disoriented and paranoid, but when Lucan went to prepare a cold washcloth and call the police, Veronica ran away, and he has no idea where she went. Now, apart from that last part, Lucan is lying through his teeth, but he seems so composed. So, Susan buys it. In her mind, he has to be telling the truth, because the alternative is even more inconceivable that she's hosting a killer in her house. And it probably doesn't hurt that Lucan puts on a dramatic act about how sad he is about Sandra's death. After he's finished with the story, Lucan makes a few phone calls. And by the time midnight rolls around, it should be time for him to get some sleep. Instead, he writes three letters. The first, to a friend named Bill Shand Kidd. In it, he basically tells the same story he told Susan, only his language isn't distraught or worried. It's defensive. He starts sowing seeds for future gaslighting, predicting that Veronica will tell an egregious lie and accuse him of killing Sandra. I imagine he's hoping that if his fake narrative reaches people first, maybe they won't know what to believe. Before the letter ends, he says he plans to stay out of the public eye for a bit, so he'd appreciate if Bill would let his kids stay with him and his family, at least until the dust settles. Lucan addresses the second letter to Michael Stoop, the friend who lent him the Ford Corsair. It's not as forthcoming as the first, though. He doesn't even mention Sandra's death. He writes, I've had a traumatic night of unbelievable coincidence. I won't bore you with anything or involve you. The words aren't easy to wrap your head around, and it's hard to tell what he's thinking. Maybe the severity of his crimes is finally sinking in, and he can't face it. Or maybe he doesn't want to implicate more people than he already has. But he ends the letter with, I no longer care, except that my children are protected. And this stands out to me. There's the irony that he's the bigger threat to his children's safety at the moment. But more importantly, it feels like it marks a shift in his mental state. Like he's realized he's backed himself into a corner with no way out. After finishing, Lucan writes another letter to Bill Shand Kid. 
This one's basically just a set of instructions, laying out which Lucan family heirlooms can be auctioned off to pay the debts he owes to his creditors. To me, it's a sign that Lucan's becoming more sure that when he leaves the public eye, he doesn't plan to return anytime soon. When he's done, it's around 1.15 a.m., and Lucan asks Susan if she has any sleeping pills. She urges him to stay the night and rest, but Lucan refuses. His coat's already on, and he says he needs to get back. Susan lets him go, but not before giving him four Valium pills. He swallows them as he leaves. He doesn't say he's headed back to London. He doesn't mention where he's going at all but it's the last time that Richard John Bingham is seen in the flesh. Meanwhile, back in London, detectives have been looking for Lucan for hours. They arrived at the Lower Belgrave house a few hours earlier, around 10.30 p.m., and found the gruesome crime scene. Sandra's body at the bottom of the stairs stuffed crudely into a mail sack the basement covered in blood that trailed upstairs, through the hallway, and into the kitchen nook. The violence needed to inflict the injuries on Sandra's body sent chills down the official spines. And around 11 p.m., as they surveyed the house and collected samples, something strange happened. Lord Lucan's mother, Kate, arrived. She told the police she was there to collect her grandchildren. And when they asked her how she knew to come over, she explained carefully that her son asked her to as a favor. He said there had been a terrible catastrophe at the house, but not much else. In other words, Lucan's mother openly admits to police that she was in touch with her son, a likely suspect in a murder that happened less than two hours earlier, and still fully expects they'll let her collect her grandchildren, potential witnesses to the crime, and walk out the door. It sounds delusional, but believe it or not, the police allow it. I have to assume that status plays a role here because I can't imagine it being that easy for anyone else, even with the precautions officials do take. They send Kate and the kids back with an escort. They station a few officers at her home, hoping Lucan calls again. And luckily, before long, he does. Police listen as Kate assures Lucan that she has the kids, before asking her son a simple question that sets the tone for the rest of the investigation. Not did he kill Sandra Rivet or attack his wife. Just what's his plan? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. 
It's late at night on Thursday, November 7th, 1974. Lord Lucan's whereabouts are unknown, but he's on the phone with his mother. Ignoring all the horrors that have happened, she asks her son what he intends to do next. And he doesn't reply. She keeps trying, prodding him for answers. She even invites him to get on the phone with one of the police officers in her home, but he declines, simply saying, I don't think I'll speak with them now. Before he hangs up, he assures his mother that he'll call back in the morning, but officials don't hold their breath. A little after 1 a.m., the lead detective sends an officer to search Lucan's apartment on Elizabeth Street. When they arrive, the place is mostly bare, unopened bills on the table, liquor bottles cluttering the kitchen. It doesn't look like Lucan returned after the murder. But Lucan's passport and the keys to his Mercedes are still there, meaning he won't be able to leave the country, at least not through any legal means. Without any leads, police turn to the one person who knows Lucan's habits and hideouts better than anyone else, his ex-wife, Veronica. Officers arrive at her hospital bed around 2 a.m. When they ask her if she knows where Lucan might've gone, she responds, your guess is as good as mine. She is dejected, traumatized, and scared. She has 60 stitches in her head, hasn't slept, and is likely sedated. So detectives decide they'll come back in the morning. When they do, Veronica's much more lucid, and she's ready to give her story. The version of events I already walked you through. Eventually, Veronica's story is picked up by the media and accepted by the police. It's the only way it all makes sense. If Lucan didn't kill anyone, why would he be on the run? And given his vindictive past, it seems evident that he mistook Sandra for Veronica in the dark and killed the wrong woman. But no evidence surfaces of Lucan's whereabouts until three days after the attack. On November 10th, officials find the Ford Corsair that Lucan borrowed abandoned in a coastal town, about an hour and a half south of London. It's parked on a residential side street, and inside, there's blood smeared all over the interior, two bottles of vodka, and a piece of lead pipe in the trunk. Detectives fan out and scour the area, guest houses, hotels. Divers search a nearby marina known as The Hole, Eventually, dogs and helicopters are brought in, but there are no signs of Lucan anywhere. So investigators turn to Lucan's friends and family, but when they do, they find themselves completely stonewalled. No one will return their calls. A power struggle breaks out. It's like the aristocrats of London have decided to close ranks in order to protect their own. Lucan's old gambling buddies and friends from Eaton are dismissive and uncooperative. According to author Laura Thompson, they treat the police like, quote, funny little servants. Susan Maxwell Scott, the woman who hosted Lucan on the night of the attack, doesn't even tell investigators that he visited her house. The police have to put that together from the letters he wrote. And when the police do finally question her, Susan regurgitates the story she was told 
Lucan was a hero who interrupted a fight between a murderous assailant and his ex-wife. Other friends give the appearance that they're being cooperative. Bill Shandkid brings his letters to the police, while at the same time refusing to return their calls. Michael Stoop brings in his letters as well, but conveniently loses the postmarked envelopes, which would show where Lucan mailed them from. According to Lucan's friends and family, they're being more than cooperative. They say the police like to paint them in a negative light because they, quote, don't like posh people. And whether it's to protect their own reputation or not, a few of Lucan's friends happily make public statements. One goes on TV urging Lucan to turn himself in. Another writes into the Daily Express, saying if Lucky is still alive, which I believe he is, would he please contact me? But nothing ever comes from any of it. There's only one man who actually helps, Greville Howard, the friend who invited Lucan out to the theater the night he disappeared. He tells officials a harrowing story. A few days before the attack, he and Lucan got on the subject of finances. Lucan mentioned how broke he was, Howard suggested filing for bankruptcy. Lucan balked and suggested an alternative. He proposed killing Veronica to regain control of the house at Lower Belgrave Street. That way, he could sell it if he needed to. Howard's testimony is enough to launch an official inquest into Sandra's death. And after less than 30 minutes of deliberation, a jury eventually determines that Lord Lucan is guilty of killing Sandra Rivet. But the ruling only carries so much weight because Lucan is missing and he's never been found. Nobody knows where he went after taking those Valiums and leaving Susan Maxwell Scott's house on November 8, 1974. We just know he survived long enough to call his mother one time after that. Otherwise, all we have are theories about what could have happened. Now, before I examine some of the most likely, I want to warn you that there's some graphic material and discussions of suicide ahead. So if you wanna skip ahead like 30 seconds or so, I totally understand. Okay. One major theory comes from the case's lead investigator. He believes Lucan drove to New Haven, boarded a ferry, and jumped into the channel before he could be spotted. He's even suggested that Lucan might have jumped into the ferry's propellers to ensure his death and make recovering his body difficult. Fearing the shame of a murder trial and the stigmas of suicide, he may have intentionally made his story appear open-ended. And people on both sides of the aisle, detectives and Lucan's inner circle think this is a likely option. But the difficulty is, if it is true, we'll never be able to get confirmation. There will always be doubt. Which brings me to the many reported sightings of Lord Lucan since his disappearance. Most aren't worth touching on. Like Elvis sightings in the US, a lot of them are completely sensationalized and implausible. But there are a few that do make a compelling case that Lord Lucan didn't take his own life. One comes from a secretary who worked for one of Lucan's close friends, who spoke to the BBC in 2012, 
decades after his disappearance, and only under the condition of remaining anonymous. Apparently, after Lucan disappeared, she booked two different flights to Africa for his children. Lucan's brother Hugh lived in South Africa, so on the surface, this wasn't that unusual. But according to her, the real reason for the trip was so that Lord Lucan, who had been living in Africa as a fugitive, could see his children at a distance. For their protection, they never reunited or made contact. If true, this account adds weight to a sighting of Lord Lucan in Africa that the BBC reported as credible and sheds a whole new light on a sighting that happened decades earlier. In 1995, a babysitter who worked for the Maxwell Scots came forward with a never-been-heard story. Apparently, on November 8, 1974, the day after Sandra Rivett's murder, she saw Lucan drinking with her bosses, Ian and Susan Maxwell Scott, in their home, meaning Lord Lucan may have never left. Some believe this story is proof of a larger cover-up where Lucan's friends abandoned the Ford Corsair for him as a distraction and have kept Lucan safe in hiding ever since. To be clear, the Maxwell Scots have denied this, saying it's nothing more than another frivolous rumor manufactured to fill the British tabloids. But I think it's worth mentioning because the Maxwell Scott's driver also reported a story of his own. He worked for his father's taxi firm and claimed the Maxwell Scott's contacted his father to pick up Lord Lucan and drive him to Headcorn in Kent, near a small airport. The plan was apparently for Lucan to fly to France. And while that was happening, he picked up someone in New Haven, right where officials found the Ford Corsair meaning it really could have been planted there. The driver said neither he nor his father were ever questioned by police. I'm not saying these theories don't have their holes. I can't explain why the driver waited so long to say something or why the Maxwell Scots wouldn't just drive Luke into the airfield themselves. But there's a reason they feel so believable. And it's the same reason Earl's don't commit murder feels hollow it seems like the people in Lord Lucan's life who are wealthy and powerful feel above the law. Like they're more interested in loyalty and self-preservation than justice. Susan Maxwell Scott has literally said as much. After she failed to contact police when Lord Lucan visited her on the same night he brutally murdered Sandra Rivet and beat his ex-wife to a pulp, she wrote a letter to the Daily Star in which she said, "'Loyalty among friends is, in my opinion, the highest morality in life.'" This almost leaves me speechless. I don't even know what to say, other than she's wrong. She's basically saying that truth doesn't factor into morality because the truth doesn't have loyalties and justice doesn't need them. But if Susan were alive today, the question I'd most want to ask her is, have you met Sandra Rivet's friends? Next episode, an entirely different type of inner circle. 
When local news anchorwoman Jody Hoosentroop disappears in 1995, the suspect list basically includes the whole town. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to listen to this episode, 40 people disappeared in the United States alone. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing persons case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families in order to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. Thank you so much for listening. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Disappearances stars Sarah Turney and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Alex Button, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Disappearances was written by Mackenzie Moore, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire and Connor Sampson, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice.